Welcome. Welcome to this week's Think Jewish. Thank you. And just as an introduction, there are times where the Rebbe, a blessed memory, would deliver consecutive maimorim, consecutive discourses on the same topic, developing the concept deeper and deeper with more clarity each time. Okay, so that's what we call, I mentioned this to you once before, and we spoke about that this is called a hemshach, a continuation. Such a, such a case happened in 1968. In 1968, the week before Shavuot, on that Shabbat Bamidbar, and the holiday of Shavuot, and the Shabbat after Shavuot. Okay, which would be this week's uh, Torah portion. Not so. In those three weeks, the Rebbe delivered a series, a three-part series of Maimorim, which is the same context. And um, they, all they all started with posing the same question. So the question basically is as follows. I'll tell it to you as it was in each one, and then I'm just going to go straight to the entirety of the teaching. So the week before Shavuot, we recite Ethics of Our Fathers, Chapter 5. In there we have a teaching, the first Mishnah. The first teaching of chapter 5 is that God created the world with 10 utterances, right? And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. Right? And then the Mishnah says, but God could have done it with one utterance. He could have had one utterance and everything would have happened. And it goes on to explain why he did it in 10 utterances. The Kabbalistic definition of that teaching is that he actually did both. First, God said one utterance which in which everything was created. And then he went on to go on to the, throughout the six days of creation. He said the other nine utterances, which each one fomented individually the creations of that day. And the question is, why do we have to have the klal, the all-inclusive general utterance, and then have the prat, which is the specific details of the other nine? Okay, that question, why both the klal, general, all-inclusive, and the prat, all the specific details, is the question of those three maimorim. Okay, the next, uh, on the next maimor, Shavuot, the Rebbe speaks about the Ten Commandments. What does the first say? And God spoke all these words saying. And the question is, what does it mean he spoke all these words saying? He should have just said, and God spoke. Or God said, I am God, your God, and go on from there. So Rashi gives one interpretation. The Alter Rebbe quotes another interpretation. Rashi says, from here we see that originally God said all ten utterances in one shot. Something the human mouth can't say and the human ear can't hear. Then after God said the all-inclusive ten commandments in one commandment, then he went on to start over and give the detail. Again, the klal the all-inclusive general, and the prat, the specific details. And over there too, the Rebbe asked the question, why? The Alter Rebbe actually explains when it says all these words saying, he says from here we know that the entire oral law was given by God to Moses. And once again we have this concept, but here we're not talking about the all-inclusive Ten Commandments and the particular details of the Ten Commandments. Rather, what we're talking about here is the written law, which is the all-inclusive, which has within it all the details which will be extrapolated from it, which is the oral law. Okay? 
The third mimer, which is the mimer of this Shabbat in 1968, the Rebbe still continued with that topic, and the Rebbe introduced the question here because the, in this week's Torah portion, we read how each one of the princes of the tribes, there were 12 princes for the 12 tribes, each one of them brought an inauguration for the altar. So we had 12 days where each leader of the tribe, each prince of the tribe, in honor and in, and in, in name of their entire tribe, they brought the, the, um, the inaugurative sacrifices, a lot of sacrifices. However, it says over there, the words, and this is the this is the inauguration of the altar in the day that the altar was anointed when it was anointed and over here once again if you read the teaching the anointment of the altar was the all-inclusive inauguration for the entire altar while the sacrifices of each 12 individuals given individual in each day was the in individual inauguration of the sacrifice performance on the altar. So again over here we have the all-inclusive anointment, anointing of the, of the altar and then we have the detailed, the prat, the specific details of each prince on his day representing his tribe brought the specific um, sacrifices. Okay, so the all the, the, the entire question of all these three Maimorim is one and the same question. Why is it that first we have the Klal and then we have the Prat? The all-inclusive dot rule and then we have the specific details. Okay? Now, what we're going to be experiencing tonight is this question on the two dimensions that they were asked. You see that we asked a question concerning creation the utterance and the utterances and we speak about the Torah the all-inclusive delivery of all ten commandments in one and then the detail delivery of each commandment by itself or take it to the next step as the Alter Rebbe says the all-inclusive verses of the written law and from there is to be extrapolated all the details of the oral law so you have the all-inclusive written law the verses of the written law, and you have the extrapolation of all the details of the oral law. Okay? And thus we have the name of tonight's lecture, tonight's class, and that is Divine Extrapolation, and the subtitle is Drawing Forth the Teachings of Mashiach. How are we going to get to there? Okay? Okay. <sighs> However, how are we going to understand this process of the extrapolation from the klal, all-inclusive, general, to the prat, to the very specific details. How are we going to understand it in both dimensions, that of creation, the whole secret of the evolution of the infinite light, and concerning the Torah, okay? The process from the one all-inclusive commandment to all the Ten Commandments to all of the oral law. And how we're going to understand it is through the metaphor that is given in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus. And here we're going to get very Kabbalistic, just stick with it. You know that we always, we always bring it down to earth and that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Okay? But the process that we need to understand is that of the teacher and that of the student. Okay? Because when the teacher teaches a teacher's thought to a student's mind, 
he has to go through that same process of the contraction, creating the short, precise teaching of the cloud from which will later be extrapolated all the details. Okay? So, first, let me just be clear with what the definition of Kabbalah of teacher and student is. In the, the teachings of Kabbalah, the difference between the teacher and the student is not just that the student is lacking in the quantitative knowledge. Rather, what stops the student from being able to understand the teacher's paradigm is his lack of the qualitative intellectual capacity. So, in the world of Kabbalah, the definition of the teacher, the teacher's paradigm, is the bird's eye view of the highest godly world of Atzilut. And over there, the paradigm is one of God is everything and everything is God. That is the teacher's paradigm in the works of Kabbalah when we talk about the teacher. The student, on the other hand, is the worm's eye view, which is the paradigm of the nether physical world in which it sees itself, the creation, is that of an egocentric identity and is not capable of receiving the teaching of the teacher in which God is everything and everything is God. So when we talk about the teacher and the student and the necessity of a total contraction within the teacher's mind to stop thinking like a teacher and begin thinking like a student in order to prepare and deliver a lecture to his students, we now understand why. It is simply not within the capacity of the student's mind, the creation's egocentric identity, paradigm, to be able to accept and truly digest the teacher's paradigm in which God is everything and everything is God. Okay? So that concept of the teacher and the student, not just being one is older than the other, and one has more knowledge than the other. We're talking about a total different paradigm. We're talking about the infinite paradigm of the teacher versus the finite paradigm of the student. And again, what makes one finite and one infinite is not the, quantitative, the quantitative amount of knowledge, that he has an infinite amount of knowledge and he has a finite amount of knowledge, no. We're talking about the capacity. The capacity of the teacher is infinite. The capacity of the student is finite. So even when they approach one teaching, just one teaching, the teacher's bird eye view perceives that that is an infinite teaching from the infinite God, a total different paradigm than the student who sees it as one finite teaching, which he, the egocentric identity of the creation, feels, aha, I got it. So we're talking about two different worlds, okay? Uh, thus, for the teacher to be able to teach the teacher, the student, anything, 
there's a huge issue. Because if the teacher is going to teach the teacher's teachings, where does that leave the students? Right? If he's not going to teach the teacher's teachings, he's going to talk to the student and teach the student the student's teachings, then what's the student learning? The whole relationship is that somehow the teacher should overcome the gap and find a way to deliver to the student's world, the student's paradigm, a teacher's thought. Thus, the only way for the teacher to do that is to stop thinking as a teacher, find within him the student's paradigm. From that point, now take that, take that teacher's thought, mold it, and deliver it. Okay? Now, the question is, how do you know that in the teacher's world there exists the student's paradigm? Who told you or me that a teacher has the capacity, the Kabbalah teacher, I'm talking about what the Kabbalah calls a teacher, a total, total, abstract, exponentially quantitative, different world, infinitely separated. Who says that that teacher has within him the power to be able to experience a student's paradigm? For the ultimate bird's eye view, who sees God as everything and everything as God, how can you think that he is even capable of understanding the student's paradigm of a worm's eye view. <laughs> this is not on my notes, but as I'm struggling here with eye contact, <laughs> making sure that everyone's still with me here. So, I've reminded myself of a story. There was a person, a Baal who came to the Rebbe. Now the person who told me the story, he was probably talking about the previous Rebbe. And he was trying to explain the Rebbe how it feels when the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, attacks you. And he really thought to himself, the Rebbe is a tzaddik, the son of a tzaddik, born within holiness. He's sure that the Rebbe does not know what it means when the passion just attacks you and got you by the juggler and not leaving go. So he was trying to explain the Rebbe in a private audience asking the Rebbe for guidance he wanted to first make sure that the Rebbe understands what he's going through you understand what's going on here the student was sure that the teacher does not understand the student's struggle so he kept on trying to explain the Rebbe when, when it really attacks you and it doesn't let go it, it's just like and he was struggling himself how do I explain this to the Rebbe until the Rebbe said, you mean like a toothache, like a real bad toothache. And his eyes opened up. He said, Rebbe, you understand. In other words, one would, under, one would perceive that a man of the Moses dynasty really doesn't understand what our Yetzahara is. Talk uh, Lashon Hara, look at the opposite sex, uh, deal with kosher and non-kosher food. You would think that, that these tzaddikim, they don't even know those things. When they look at things, they just see godly sparks. And yet the Rebbe is letting him know, within me as a Rebbe, who's meant to guide you, I can understand you. 
going back to what we're talking about. And the question is, how do we know that? Believe it or not, the Alter Rebbe learns it out from a Kalva Homer. Kalva Homer is Fortiori. Anyone know what it means now? <laughs> Fortiori really means it's a process of extrapolation where we study from how much more so. What does that mean, how much more so? Simple example. If in this case you say that so is the law, how much more so in such a case that so should be the law? Right? I'm, I'm not going to make up or deliver a case right now. But if I was to tell you that a, a person is punishable for hating another person, how much more so he's punishable for killing another person? You follow how the Kavachoma works? So the Alter Rebbe delivers a very interesting Kalvachomer on this concept that we're talking about. And he says as follows. If the sun's ray exists outside of the sun, how much more so must we say that the sun's ray exists within the sun? Only that within the sun, the ray of the sun, has no identity in the face of its infinite source. Thus, you have to have the process of tzimtzum, contraction, concealment, which creates a void of the source, allowing for the ray to have its own identity. Now understand this as the sun is the teacher, the ray of the sun's light is the student. Thus, this teacher has the capacity to be able to stop thinking as a teacher, find within him the capacity of the student, and thus he can now take a teacher's thought and translate it through contraction, concealment, into the world of the student. Okay? We're going to talk about this um, a little more. So if it's not absolutely clear, um, don't worry about it. We, we're going to get this clear before before we finish. Okay, but at this point I'm going to hand out a graph that I made which will keep uh, which will help us understand tonight's class. Please do not try to understand this class without it. If you are listening online, please stop for a moment, look into the description of SoundCloud audio file and you will find there the URL to copy and paste the link and if you are on constant contact email you will find the link to click on within the email's audio description as well. So let's go ahead and quickly give this out, okay? While you're looking at the diagram of a source of light giving off light as per the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, however, to understand this, one more introduction is necessary before you try to decipher what I put together there. Okay? Whenever, whenever there is a contraction in the higher level, the lower level will first receive a klal, an all-inclusive dot. This one dot includes within it the length, the width, and the depth of the prot details of what will be extrapolated from it. Now if I sound like completely Kabbalistic, 
Let's make it very practical in a perfect example used in Chassidus. The man's sperm has within it all the details of the DNA ladder. However, it's in an all-inclusive one-dot form. It is only through the gestation period from conception until birth that the extrapolation of all those details that are hidden within the dot are brought out and turned into a three-dimensional full developed child. In the world of intellect this works the same way. Wisdom, wisdom is the father which in that world of intellect all you have is the all-inclusive one flash of wisdom. Understanding is where we extrapolate from that one dot of wisdom the three-dimensional width, length, and depth of all the intellect that lies hidden within the wisdom. That is why in the world of Kabbalah when we talk about the meeting of wisdom and understanding we call it a dot in its three-dimensional chamber. There is no detail of understanding which comes from anywhere but from the dot of wisdom. And all that is hidden within the wisdom, its purpose and fruition is to become extrapolated into the chamber, the three-dimensional chamber of understanding. That's the way it works with the father-mother reproduction process. And that's the way it works with intellect. And that's the way it works with the secret of the evolution of the infinite light. It's the same process, okay? We have to have the before, after the symptom, after the total void, the making room for the student, quote-unquote, ID, the identification of the student, we first have to introduce the all-inclusive dot before we introduce from that, extrapolating from that, the entire light of the finite divine light. So right after the tzimtzum, right, the whole creation of the void, right, the Kabbalistic Big Bang, we moved all the infinite to the side so that we can start introducing a finite source of life so that we can create a finite worlds. The first stop is actually not the divine light, which you always read about. The first stop is the one dot. That's the first introduction back into the void. The one dot, which is called in the works of Hasidus and Kabbalah by the name Rishima, which means a marking. From that Rishima, we later develop the entire infinite line, that, that divine light, which is called the Kav, which that becomes the source light vitality of all creation, each on its own level. And then later even the lower worlds only receive from a ray of that ray until you have a ray of a ray of a ray and it's the same way with our soul. Our soul, you have the essence of our soul, that doesn't fit into the body. We'd all be schizophrenic crazy if that light was shining into our head. So you have the five layers and of the fifth layer, which is called nefesh, there's a ray of a ray which shines into our body. It's very interesting that when you look into the Jewish law and it tells you you don't have to do it, 
but someone of greater caliber would would take it upon himself the wording he uses Baal Nefesh that's already like a huge thing if you're connected to the lowest level of your soul but what I'm trying to say here is on all three levels in the creation of reproduction in the evolution from the teacher to the student in the process and evolution from the infinite source to the finite light which becomes the life force of every single finite creature okay okay before we get to this before we get to this um, chart which we really need to study in a moment the question is that I just told you that what's important to remember is after the contraction within the teacher you will always be the clow the all-inclusive one dot and then from there is extrapolated all the details the prat clow general one dot all-inclusive rule and then you have the prat the details the specific details okay so remember those words clow the all-inclusive dot the prat the specific three-dimensional details okay now the question that I told you the Rebbe asked in each one of these three teachings that's how he starts off is why why both the cloud and the prat why the cloud and from there develop the prat okay so the simple answer the simple answer is that if you're going directly from the teachers paradigm into the students mind even if we're talking about that the teacher had the contraction and now has that one all-inclusive dot of the teacher right that's the student's mind within the teacher were he to deliver just that then all of creation would not have its own identity it would not have its own freedom of choice it would be a total overload to the student and a total shutdown if he would have gone straight to the details without first stepping back and making the one all-inclusive dot what would have happened is that the student would never be able to perceive the teacher's paradigm one of the two would happen if you missed any one of these two process cloud and then prat either you would overload the system there would be no identity no freedom of choice the dot in itself would not allow for the student to be able to find himself in it and if you went straight to the details he would never be able to appreciate the Hashem Echad God is everything and everything is God now I know you guys are looking at me like whoa where are you climbing and climbing and climbing hey come back so let me give you a very simple practical teaching that each one of us knows that will help us understand this you'll notice right under your nose in your upper lip there's a invention we all know that what's the teaching upon that invention it's because before we're born God sends an angel with a divine flame spiritual flame placed upon the head of the child and that angel teaches the child in the mother's womb the entire Torah right before the child is born the angel taps him gives a knip on the upper lip and he forgets everything what's the obvious question here 
The obvious question is, if you're going to teach him everything, why do you make him forget? And if you're going to make him forget, why do you need to teach it to him? What is the answer to that question? The answer to that question is that it is impossible for the human mind to understand divine intellect on its own. There is no way that the finite egocentric human mind's capacity will ever be able on its own to truly understand and digest a theocentric infinite divine intellect. It's just not happening. Thus, God goes ahead and sends the angel with a spiritual flame. And the job is to deeply embed within the very genetics of the human mind the entire Torah. However, creation was not about the angels teaching us Torah. Creation was all about the human being having freedom of choice, having to toil, to make an effort to create a man-made castle for God. Thus, if the child was born knowing all of the Torah, the entire purpose of creation would be defeated. So thus, the angel taps him on his lip. And what happens now? We now have a beautiful scenario. On the one hand, it's deeply embedded within the genetics of this human mind to be able to understand the teacher's paradigm, the Holy Torah. God is everything and everything is God. However, that is useless because on all the layers above the DNA of the human mind, it's been forgotten. Thus, you have to toil, freedom of choice, to learn or not to learn. Do I really understand or should I just give up? That process that precious process of the human mind digging and digging and digging within the Holy Torah to find the divine intellect, the divine paradigm of truth, and then finally be able to digest some of it. That is the beauty of it all. Thus you have the one all-inclusive, almost out of reach, Klau, the angel taught it to you. On what level? in the deepest level of the genetics of your human mind. Then he gave you a knip. What did he gain by giving you a knip? Now we have the human being's freedom of choice. We have his identity. He's not just born with no choice but to understand and think like the Torah wants him to. Thinking Jewish is a real struggle. It's precious because you have to work for it. That is the details. The Malach giving him a knip on his lip. The angel tapping his upper lip is the process of going from the extrapolation from the one all-inclusive hidden within the deep genetics of the human mind to the revealed expressive specific details of the human mind okay so i hope now it makes more sense why we need to have that one all-inclusive cloud from which will the later come down the prop okay Without that one all-inclusive, deeply embedded, we have no chance of ever uniting with the ultimate truth of divine paradigm, the teacher's paradigm. If we only have that without the details, there is no freedom of choice and there is no, there is no identity of the creation. That is the simple, simple, simple explanation.
However, the beauty of these three teachings, the Maimorim that we're, we're studying here, is that the Rebbe tells us that there's something beyond that simple understanding. It is only because of the process of contraction, klal, dot, all-inclusive, prat, specific details, that we end up getting the greatest gift that God gave human mankind. That's what we're going to explore tonight. What I just shared with you was very simple. In order to have freedom of choice, you need both possibilities. You need the possibility of having the teacher's paradigm, Hashem Achad, God is everything and everything is God. And you need to have the freedom of choice to have that arrogance, that egocentric identity of who are you, God? So if you have first the klal, you have the possibility of having that Hashem Echad paradigm. And then when you have all the prat, so you have the possibility to say, oh, leave me alone with that Hashem Echad. So we have both. The freedom of choice, which allows for precious, and we have the klal, which allows for accomplishment. Now, let us go ahead and look at the graph and we'll understand what the Rebbe is telling us. Okay? So remember what our destiny is. Our destination for tonight is to understand that only through this contraction, cloud all-inclusive dot, and very specific three-dimensional details, we will reach to an unprecedented gift from God. Okay? So, let's look at this. You'll notice that I have on the bottom all three, right? You have the Orin Sof translation of it. You have the teacher-student translation of it. You have the written Torah and oral Torah translation of this. Okay, we don't need to go through all three right now. So let's just start with the most important thing. Number one. Number one is completely irrelevant to our class tonight. Number one is the giver. We're not talking about the giver, the source of light, the giver of the Torah. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the source of intellect of the teacher. We're going to leave that alone for tonight. I just wanted to put it there so you understand what we're talking about. Our study for tonight is about the process of the evolution of the light. So let's not talk about the source right now. Put one aside for tonight. Let's start with after number one. You'll notice the first thing is that two and three. Do you notice two and three? So you have the center is number two, and then you have the outside of the center, which is number three. Top and bottom, it's really all around, right? Now, number two is the realm of the teacher's intellect. If we're talking about the the, the, in the world of the infinite light, every single light, according to Kabbalah, has the light, the beam of light, and the expression of the light. So that beam of light is what number two is. Number three is the expression of the light. Just to give you an example, in art, right? If you wanted to draw a picture of light, what would you do? You'd actually make one column, and then off that column you'd have little lines coming, right? And if you're really doing it right with art, you have a bigger line, smaller line, back to the bigger line, back to the smaller line, right? You're picturing in your mind how you draw that? That's what you're looking at here. This number two is the light. Number three 
is the way the expression of the light is coming off the light. What? No, sun would be number one. We're talking over here, the beam of light, and we're talking about the expression of the light coming off it, right? You ever shine, you ever shine a flashlight on the floor? You have the inner light, right? You have the outer light. If that helps you understand, it's fine. Okay? So now, so number two is the teacher. Number three is the student within the teacher's mind. Remember we spoke about everything what? We're talking about the light here. We're not talking about the vessels. We're talking about the light. So it's important to know that two and three is not the student. It's within the teacher's mind. We have the teacher's thinking, and then we have the teacher stopping to think as a teacher, starting to think as the student in order to prepare and deliver the class. So let's go through how this would actually work. The teacher is trying to figure something out. And the teacher finally figures it out. So now the teacher has a teaching. But when the teacher was trying to figure it out and the teacher was trying to get this whole process, he was only thinking as a teacher. The student has no chance to understand anything of that. It's only when the teacher says, wow, I got to teach this to my class. But one second, how am I going to teach this to my class? My class is not capable of such a teacher's paradigm thought. And thus he has to say what? One second, back it up. Let me stop thinking like a teacher. Let me imagine that my class is sitting right in front of me. Let me see the look in their eyes. Let me start thinking on that term. That's number three. So when the teacher himself was studying and figuring it out, that's number two. And then when the teacher says, whoa, this would be a great class. Let me try to figure out how I can deliver this to my students. We now entered into number three. Okay? So it's important to understand this entire picture is all within the teacher. There is no student in this graph. Let me give you another example so we can understand this. Okay? There's the light and there's the vessel. If the infinite light were to shine within the vessel, what would happen to the vessel? It would shatter. So what does the infinite light have to do? The infinite light has to impose upon itself a contraction. What happens when it contracts? When it imposes upon itself a contraction, what's it doing? It's finding within itself the light that understands and appreciates the finite capacity of the vessel. So all we're talking about here is the light. There is no vessel. The light is the teacher. The vessel is the student. But when the light realizes that if it shines into the vessel, it's going to shatter the vessel, therefore, what does it do? It contracts itself. And what does it do when it contracts itself? It pulls the infinite side of itself away, finding within it the finite part of itself that does what? That understands and appreciates the vessel. Okay? Let me get a little more Kabbalistic so you'll actually understand it better. 
Look in the beginning of Genesis. 32 times, which name of God does it use? Elohim. What do you and I know about Elohim? Elohim is all about nature, contraction. No, it's not. Elohim is the name of God. What do you mean it's nature? It's not nature. It's, it's God. Aha. Uh -huh. It's the light within God that understands and appreciates the finite level of nature. Thus, what does Rashi say? The minute Rashi sees that we're using Elohim instead of Hashem, Hashem is infinite. Elohim equals 86. That's the number of Hateva, the nature. What does Rashi say? Rashi gives us this unbelievable parable. It says that God saw that if I were only to use the infinite, what would happen? It would shatter. It gives a metaphor of a teacher, of, of a king that had very precious um, crystal glasses. You want to wash it. If you put it in boiling hot water, it's going to shatter. If you put it in cold water, it's going to remain dirty. So what did he do? He mixed the two together. So what are we seeing here? What we're seeing here is that this whole process of the Elohim doing the creation rather than the ineffable tetragrammaton of Yudke Vavke, what is that? That is the infinite light saying, if I shine into this vessel, it's going to shatter. Let me pull back and find within myself the light which can comprehend and relate to the creation. Thus, Havaya steps back, Elohim steps forward. That's exactly what you're looking here. When you're looking at number 10, you're looking at the Havaya. When you're looking at number 3, you're looking at the Elohim. It's where the teacher Havaya says, whoa, 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 whoa. There is no way I can share this or teach this to my class. Let me contract, let me pull back, let Elohim step out. Okay? Okay, let's go further. It, it sounds like it's a long way to go, but trust me, it's, it's going to be very quick. Okay? Okay, so we have one is the source. We're not even talking about that. Two is the teacher as the teacher. Three is the teacher stopping to think as a teacher and starting to think as a student. Okay? Okay. Now, number four is the essence of the teacher's intellect. Now, I'm going to explain this at greater length at the end of the class. What you need to remember for right now is an unbelievable Kabbalistic rule. Essence denies expression and it denies revelation. Thus, number four is something that the teacher himself does not experience. The teacher's intellectual experience begins with number five. Because number five is the expression of the essence. Expression is what experience is all about. Essence is not what the experience is all about. Because essence is hidden by nature. It doesn't express itself. It doesn't reveal itself. It just is. So even the teacher in his teaching and studying experience, never experiences number four. His experience starts with number five. Number five is where, okay, let me learn this. Let me understand it. What's it saying? But how could it be? Aha, uh -huh. that's the teacher experiencing his own intellect. Between number five and number six, we could say tonight, that's where the contraction within the teacher happens. That's when he realizes, whoa, 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 I cannot give over what I just figured out. I got to contract, back it up. 
right? We're going to teach kindergarten or whatever, math. We're going to teach fractions to a fifth grade. What are we going to do? We're not going to talk about the abstract numbers. We're going to talk about a pizza pie. They know what pizza is. They know what happens if you cut a pizza in eight, pie, in eight slices. What happens if someone ate two slices? What's left of it? Now we're talking to the student's language, but what are we doing? We're teaching them teacher's mathematics. But the teacher who refuses to stop thinking in his abstract beauty of numbers and formulas and is not willing to think in the student's pizza pie of eight slices where two are missing, he's not going to get to teach. So between five and six is where the contraction within the teacher happens. It's where the teacher says, I love thinking like a teacher, but my job is to teach. I've got to stop thinking like a teacher and start thinking like a student. Now, number six and number seven, what's the difference between the two? Number six is that's the first thing that happens after contraction, I told you. When the higher goes through a contraction, what's the first thing that goes to the lower? The all-inclusive one dot. How does the oral law start? Anyone know? The oral law doesn't start with the Talmud. The Talmud are pages and pages and pages long. The oral law starts with one Mishnah. And then that Mishnah, that one teaching, case law, is extrapolated and extrapolated and extrapolated for pages of arguments and arguments and details. Number six is the Mishnah. Number six is the one all-inclusive dot that we can study with a young child. From there, he graduates his understanding that the Mishnah isn't just what it seems to be. Because all of the information of the Talmud comes from nowhere else but from the Mishnah. So yeah, if you go ahead and you learn in the verse, let's take a simple situation which you and I will always struggle with. Rabbi, how could it be that turning on a BMW on Shabbos, driving to shul, is considered walk, is work? However, to wake up early and to walk for an hour in a Florida sunny, hot Shabbos. No, 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 no. That's beautiful. That's okay. How can it be? How can it be to move furniture in your house is not desecrating Shabbat? To walk with one key in your pocket and your license in case you get stopped and you need ID, that's called desecrating Shabbat. And we're all confused about it. Because all we know that it says in the Torah is what? Thou shall not do any work. Who's there to define the definition of the word work? So, what happens? It's all hidden there in the Torah. But without the Talmud telling us one second, we have to look in the Torah where Hashem Himself defines the word work. And the only place where He uses the word work with a definition is by building the holy tabernacles. Over there He says craftsmanship work. Aha, we're getting somewhere. We know that God's definition of work has nothing what to do with how much sweat or how much energy you're using. It has to do with craftsmanship, something constructive, something creative. Ah, one second. What is that? What does God define as that? So we comb through the entire Mishkan and we come up with five factors. Five factors that defines craftsmanship work from doodle work. You're allowed to doodle work on Shabbos. You're not allowed to craftsmanship work on Shabbos. Then you comb through and you find out the 39 head categories. All of that, my dear friends, was actually hidden in one verse. Thou shall not do any work on Shabbos. Everything was hidden there in the word work. But you and I would have known nothing of it 
if not for the process of the extrapolation. But when you talk to God, God says, what do you mean you don't understand? I told you, don't do any work. Because in God's word, work lies everything I just told you. Craftsmanship, five factors, 39 categories. It's all there. But you and I have to extrapolate. That happens through the process of first giving me the verse so I don't get blown away. Can you imagine if all you would have seen in the Torah was, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, this is the Rabbana, this is the Raisa, this is a custom, this you shouldn't do, but if you have to do, if it costs so much, if it didn't cost so much, no one's keeping Shabbat. So God made it a little more palatable to us. All I'm telling you is, don't work on Shabbat. I got that. Okay, it's a day of rest. I get that. Then we start the process. The student studies and studies and extrapolates. So that's what you're talking about with number six and number seven. Okay? Whew. Yes, correct. Seven would be the oral law. Six would be the written law. Okay? Okay. Okay, so again, let's just go through it quickly. Four is the untouchable, the essence of the teacher's intellect. Not untouchable by you or me, but even untouchable by the teacher. Number five is where the teacher starts experiencing his intellect. Number six is the essence of the student's teaching, but this essence is not the essence which denies revelation. Why? Because for the teacher, this is not essence. For the teacher, this is just gift wrapping very tightly and digestibly into one Mishnah, everything that he's thinking about, which later the student will figure out in the Gemara, in the Talmud. Okay? So you have the Klal and then you have the Prat. <sighs> However, what is the greatest gift? What is the greatest gift that we're talking about? If Hashem would have just given it to us right here, we would have never gotten there. But because Hashem created this whole process, the essence of God's intellect, God's intellect as it's placed into the written law, God's intellect as He does a contraction and allows for the oral Mishnah, the general dot. Then God allowing for the process of all the details of pages of pages of Talmud. What is the ultimate gift? To understand the ultimate gift, it's the teaching of Mashiach. However, I need to first go ahead and back up for a moment and share with you a one more metaphor, one more example for tonight. A person has the deepest desire to have a house. <laughs> it's not fun to live in the kids room of a shul. <laughs> you want to have a house, a house which is mine, where I'm going to live. Now when the person has that deep desire, I, I got to get a house, I got to get a house. I need a place to live, I need a house, I want my own house. Does he even know what he's thinking? Are you this? Does he even know what he's thinking? He has no idea. He has no idea what he's talking about, how many bedrooms, what color, what kind of layout? Is there going to be a pool in the back? How many bedrooms are we going to have? Is there going to be a yard? What kind of landscaping do I want? He, he himself has no idea. All he knows is he has the deepest desire. I 
want a house, right? Now let's go further. And then what happens? He meets with the people. They make blueprints. Wow, it's starting to develop. He starts feeling it's happening. And then what does he do? Like the biggest nudnik in the world. He's showing up at the construction site every single week. He wants to explain what is going to be here. What's this hole in the ground? Why are we having holes over here? Don't worry, sir. This is where we're going to put a concrete. It's going to be the beams. It's going to be this. Right? And he keeps on coming and he keeps on coming. And every time he gets through another level. Oh, my God. Now they're installing the plumbing. Wait, the electric. How many different AC units are we going to have? For this side, for that side, we can cut down the electric bill. Right? All these stuff are happening. And every single time you see the guy quelling from Nachas. He is so happy my dream it's happening with all of that he will never experience the ultimate fullest pleasure of that original desire until the entire house is finished to its finest detail with the molding with the window dressing everything only when all the details to its ultimate finest little detail has been truly had will he then quench the original desire of having a house so this is interesting laying down the foundation putting up the walls putting up the roof putting in the electric putting in the plumbing all the major big stuff not going to do it but as the person put screws on that last blind for the windows all of a sudden it all just happens what's going on here what's going on here is that that desire to have a house is number four look at your chart of course he doesn't know what he wants because i told you the essence is hidden even from the person himself It's only when the last of the details of the details of the details is fulfilled where all of a sudden he realizes number four is flowing through me. I never even knew it, but this is exactly what I wanted. Let's go to a very interesting teaching of the Mishnah. What does our sage say? I have learned a lot from my teachers even more from my colleagues and the most of all from my students. Maimonides explains, when you're dealing with your students and you can't talk to them like you talk to a colleague because a colleague is a teacher talking to a teacher. With a student, you can't just throw 14 labels. Yeah, 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 this and that. Yeah, you got it? Yeah, we got it. Good, thanks. No, you got to explain it. And the, the student is struggling. And the student's asking you questions. What are you saying, Rebbe? How can you say this when you told us that? And when how does this work out? And what's about in that case? Well, you know what? A little secret. The teacher never thought of that. Because the teacher was thinking on what level? Teacher's paradigm. Bird's eye view. He just shines from top down. But the students are the worm's eye. They're looking up and they have no idea what's going on. And they're asking, and they're fighting, and they're struggling, and they don't get it. But Rebbe, they, how can you say that? It doesn't make sense. This is what you call common sense. 
This is so abstract. How can they think this way? That fighting, that struggling, that working it out back and forth, what does it do? The Rambam says that it forces the teacher to go deeper and deeper and deeper into himself. And what happens then? The teacher is starting to experience the unexperienceable because his students pushed him beyond number five. He was pushed into number four. And thus you'll have the ultimate beauty of the Torah teaching coming only through the process of contraction, the one dot for the student, the details for the student, and the students reaching up, pulling. They don't get it. They're fighting. They're trying to understand. They're questioning. And you know that your job is not to understand. Your job is to be a teacher. So you've got to understand them, their questions. And you start realizing, you know, I never thought of that question. I don't know the answer to that. i got to go back and think about it myself. Now let's talk about the Mashiach gift. There's a very interesting v teaching about Mashiach. And that is Torah A new Torah will come forth from him. God forbid there will never be a new Torah. So what is the teaching saying? What he's saying is that Moses, Moses brought us what? Moses brought us number five, number six, and number seven. Moses brought us the teacher talking, Ten Commandments. He brought us the way the students begin to, that total cloud, all-inclusive written law, and the oral law. What's Mashiach going to give us? Mashiach's going to give us number four. What does it say about Mashiach? The verse says, And the teacher will no more hide himself behind the cloth, and all will know him. Actually, it's all will know me, capital M-E. Number four, we're talking about the essence, intellect of God will flow into the Torah. Now, what makes that possible? You know what makes that possible? I'll tell you what makes that possible. What makes that possible is you and I and everyone else, the student, the student that we're talking about from when? From 3,327 years ago, right after the chauffeur stopped sounding at the Mount Sinai. What happened at that point? We started learning. Right? The teachers stopped giving the class, so now the students are breaking up into peers, yeshiva peers called chavruta, and they're learning. And what happens now? What happens now is that the students are dealing with a very difficult situation. And you want to know what's funniest? You and I are dealing with more difficult situations than the rabbis in the time of the Talmud did. Do you know why? Because the rabbis in the time of the Talmud never had to figure out if a surrogate child carries the religion of the ovary donor, the egg donor, or the surrogate mother. They never had to deal with that. And we're sitting here trying to know what is the law. The sperm and the ovary sponsors were Jewish. The surrogate mother is not Jewish. What's the child? Now here's a problem. <laughs> Rabbis don't get to make up the word of God. They only get to explain the Word of God. So what do we have to do with this now? 
we have to start coming up the whole process. We got to go through the codifiers, which went through the Talmud, which have to go through the Mishnah, which has to come all the way to say, and from this verse in the written law, we have extrapolated that the law is that the child follows the surrogate mother and not the DNA donors. And it comes down to the verse that the, the soul is within the blood. The blood comes from the surrogate mother. This, this process of so grappling with the details has forced us into number four. What does God mean when God says that you are the religion of your mother? The rabbis of old didn't have to deal with that. All they had to deal with was, is it paternal, is it maternal? We learn off in the verse that it's maternal. End the story. They ever had such a mishigas, a donor, a surrogate mother. <laughs> there's a mother, there's a father, and there's a child. Now we got a new situation here. So working as a student, an understanding layer number seven. I have a friend, Sabi Behar, who loves to say, where the rubber hits the side, this, this pavement, right? Whatever it's called. That's number seven, the road. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about number seven, the details of the law. What is this child, Jewish or not? That's what brings about number four. Thus, you understand that for 3,327 years, you, I, and every Jew who studied Torah was struggling with number seven, which leads us to the unprecedented gift of number four, which is Mashiach's teaching, the esoteric teachings. So, of course, it was all there on Mount Sinai. But remember what I told you, number four, even the teacher doesn't experience it isn't only until number seven becomes so real that number four flows. It isn't until you deal with the window dressing that the true pleasure of the desire of having your own home flows. So in closing, this becomes even more so for you and me after the revelation of the Arizal, the Baal Shem Tov, the Alter Rebbe, because what's Mashiach's number four all about? It's about the esoteric soul of the Torah. It's the hidden teachings, the real bloodline, the lifeline of the Torah as it flows through all the mitzvahs. What does thou shall not work on Shabbat mean in its deepest esoteric meaning that gives me such a passion to keep Shabbat? That number four, by you and I starting to study the details of the esoteric teachings what we did tonight studying Hasidic concepts we are bringing here that great revelation of Mashiach in which it says and the teacher shall no more hide from a student for all will know me the real revelation of number four is the ultimate experience of the essence within the Torah. That's the soul of the Torah. <sighs> Thank you.